you would turn with me to the Gospel according to John, we had begun a study there when I interjected four sermons on Daniel. So I was working through preparations for the family camp that I got to speak at this weekend with the Boise congregation. So it's grateful to have that time to prepare and to share that preparation with you, thinking about our culture and how we're to stand in it. But we had started a study in John, and we are up to John chapter 1, verse 35, and I'd actually like to begin the scripture reading at verse 29. Our text this morning consists mainly of uh, two episodes of a disciple coming to know Jesus and then running to grab another person to bring him to Jesus, two sort of parallel events there. And so we'll be looking at that, John 1, 35 through 51, the end of the chapter, but beginning our scripture reading at John 1, verse 29. God's word. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. He did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So that's all about John the Baptist. We believe this uh, gospel account was written by John the disciple or John the apostle, who's not named in the book. But that's all talking about John the Baptist, who is pointing to Jesus Christ. And then we, our text begins at verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? 
Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. God's glorious word. Let's ask for his blessing, shall we? Heavenly Father, we bow before your inscripturated word and before the preaching of it. We thank that you've written your holy word for our learning, that we may hear it and read it and learn it and inwardly digest it. That through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and hold fast that hope of everlasting life, which you've given in Christ. And as you've promised that where two or three are gathered together, you are with us. So we pray our Lord Jesus, through the pages of his word, through the proclamation of it, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, would be among us today and do great things as he did for those early disciples. For his glory and in his name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ this morning now in the Gospel of John, we begin to see Jesus gather his, his first disciples. And so there's this transition now from, from the ministry of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer to the ministry of Jesus. And John is pointing to Jesus. And we get in this text our first glimpses of our Lord Jesus in his ministry. We get to watch the Master at work as he begins now to assemble for himself the New Testament church. And he is a gentle and a powerful Savior. He, he shows himself as kind and most loving. He's a glorious Lord, a Savior to be known and loved and trusted. And it's a sad fact that many people today believe that you actually can't know him, right? We have people who, who are atheists or anti-theists who say there is no God, but we also have people who say, I don't know if there's a God, but he can't be known, right? Agnostics. He can't be known. Is that the case? Well, the uh, wise men of Daniel's day, remember, they believed that was the case. In Daniel 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, and he insists that his uh, astrologers and magicians tell him what he dreamed, and they say, no, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you what it means. He says, no, you tell me what I dreamed, and they say, that's... That's impossible. There's no one who can tell us or you what the king dreamed in his head except the gods, and their dwelling is not with flesh. The gods don't live with men. But you remember how the Gospel of John began. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him, and the Word became flesh. God dwells with men. He came down from heaven. He took up our nature. He stooped down to us. He's revealed himself to us that we can know him. And now no one can allege that God can't be known, for not only has God revealed himself in all of creation and through his prophets, but in these last days he's spoken by his Son, who took up human nature and dwelt among us. We may know him in truth. And here, Jesus, building his church, gathers in quick succession five men to know him 
quickly converted to know him. And towards the end of the gospel, in John 17, on the night of Christ's arrest, he'll be praying to the Father and, and say that he's completed now his work. He's revealed the Father to them. And he'll say that this is eternal life to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life, to know God. And so the Messiah here is establishing the saving bond with these disciples. He's making them to know God through Christ. I'd like to consider our text under three headings this morning. First of all, this invitation to know him that we see here. And then the assurance that he knows you. And then finally, the promise that he's greater than you know. Those three points, the invitation to know him, the assurance that he knows you, and the promise that he's greater than you even know. Before we move through the text, I want to point something out to you, because we need to see that this text can't just be um, leveled to make us think that these disciples and us are exactly the same and exactly the same position. These men Christ are gathering here are are disciples to become apostles, and they have a particular ministry. And so I want to draw your attention to something that, that is repeated here. In fact, used it as the sermon title here, Come and See. In verse 39, Jesus says to the two disciples, when they ask where he's staying, verse 39, Come and see, and then you read, They came and saw. And then in verse 46, when Philip is seeking to gather Nathanael, Nathanael says, can anything, anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip replies to him, come and see. And then in verse 51, when Jesus is speaking to Nathanael, he says, most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see. Now why is all this seeing so important? It's important because Christ is making apostles, and apostles are to be eyewitnesses of Christ, of his ministry, of his resurrection, because it's their testimony upon which the church is built, the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. And so they must see. We confess in the Nicene Creed, for instance, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What does it mean? It means our church, Christ's church, is based on the foundation of the eyewitnesses, the testimony of the apostles. And so they're called to come and see, and they come and they see. And their testimony becomes the basis of our faith this morning. Without their testimony, we do not believe. We do not have Christ without their testimony. And if John the Apostle is writing this gospel, which we believe he is, at the end of the the gospel, near the end in chapter 20, remember he says, Jesus did many other signs that are not recorded in this book. We saw lots of other things. But these are written, I've written these, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we have to keep in mind this morning the unique place of the apostles in redemptive history. These apostles were uniquely set apart for a work of bearing eye testimony, eyewitness to what they saw. But, on the other hand, they are men just like us. They're weak and they're sinful and Christ wants to use them, not, not mechanically the way you use your phone to video record something. You have no relationship really with your phone. You might get a new one next year. But Christ will use these men as men, as beloved sheep, as ones he's died for. So he wants to bring them not just to bear testimony that they saw something, but he wants them to believe it and to confess it 
And so that's what happens here. Christ is dealing with them in a gentle way as wayward sheep, leading them to himself. And you notice how this works. It works, first of all, through the testimony of John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist's testimony that leads these men to Christ, that they might bear witness to Christ. And John said last time, as we saw in verse 29, he said publicly when he saw Jesus coming, John announces for the, for the first time, there he is. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then we read in verse 35, the next day, John's standing out now with a big group of people, with two disciples, and looking at Jesus as he again walks by, John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God. He says it again. The day before he said it, and apparently the disciples We're not moved to follow Jesus, but John preaches it again. Just as we must keep preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel, God will use it when and where he pleases. And today he says it, and these two disciples get it, that he's saying it to them personally. Look, there he is, the Lamb of God. And they follow. John himself is ready to resign his office. John is at the end of of his work. He needs to turn all eyes to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. And John's saying, this is the reason you should seek him. Of all reasons to seek him, because he'll take away your sin. He is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice to atone for the sins of sinners. Well, two of John's disciples then, who had not been moved yesterday, they feel the weight today and they follow Jesus. One is Andrew. The other disciple is unmentioned in terms of his name. I think it's probably John, who often, assuming he's the author of the book, omits his own name, perhaps out of modesty. And these two disciples, Andrew and perhaps John, are magnetically pulled now towards Christ. They're moving towards him. They, they certainly are, as we all are, before we know Christ, lonely creatures. And Jesus, what does he do when he sees them following? He turns around and he says, what do, you, what do you seek? What do you seek? It's not a rude question. It's a kind and inviting question. The first words of our Lord Jesus in in the gospel account now. The glorious Savior sent from heaven, the Son of God in human nature. And seeing two men make the slightest movement towards him, he says, what can I do for you? What would you like to know? And they, feeling compelled, maybe not even knowing exactly what they want, they ask him, where are you staying Perhaps signaling they want to follow him, they want to be with him, they'd like to talk to him. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, come and see. Come and see. It's a wonderful word of our Savior. If we think Jesus is unfriendly or cold or distant or unapproachable, no. That's what Satan would have us think. He doesn't have time for you. He doesn't want you. He doesn't need you. No. Come. Come, Jesus says, with with radiance. Come, he says, with love. Come and see. This is the Christ revealed in scriptures to us. This is Jesus revealing himself to us. He's the one who meets our needs. He's the one who in love gives himself. John Calvin comments upon that question of Jesus. What do you seek? Or what can I give you? What, What do you long for? Calvin comments... This kind and gracious invitation, which was once made to two persons, now belongs to us all. 
We ought therefore, we ought not therefore to fear that Christ will withdraw from us or refuse to us easy access, provided that he sees us desirous to come to him. But on the contrary, he will stretch out his hand and assist us. It is remarkable, right? These men, they don't speak the first word to Jesus. They just start to fall, but Christ opens the door. What do you seek? It's an extraordinary event. In fact, this event, this day so changed the life of of John, the gospel writer, that he remembers the very time it happened, right? Things that are big in our life, we remember where we were and what time it was. And you read at the end of verse 39, now it was about the 10th hour. Oh, I remember it, John says. That day changed my life forever when Jesus turned and invited me. And what happens here? Well, we're not told what went on at that house that day, but Jesus revealed himself. So much so that we read in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. It has been for centuries that God's people have been waiting for the Messiah or the Christ or the anointed one. All three of those mean the same thing. Hebrew, Greek, English, same thing, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. It means the Savior that God promised from of old to rescue his people. The one God anointed with the Spirit to save, to proclaim deliverance, freedom. They've been waiting and waiting. And now, out of Andrew comes this bold confession. We have found the Messiah. And that's the first of three confessions in our text. The next day, verse 43 The next day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael. Something happened there between Philip and Jesus. So Philip now finds Nathanael and says to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. That's amazing. Christ lays claim to, not just to Philip's time, but to Philip's heart. And there's an interaction of Philip comes to know who this is. And now Philip makes the second confession in our text. We found the one that the law and the prophets bore testimony to. He's here. Jesus of Nazareth. It's the son of Joseph. Many think that there is a God. He can't be known. But we see here the very opposite, that God and his beloved son is making himself known. Jesus is not some mysterious figure that, that no one can come to know. What's happening here is people are meeting Jesus, coming to know Jesus, and confessing his true titles and dignity and who he is. Come, listen to my testimony. Come see my works, Jesus says. Come, I will show myself to you. And those who meet Jesus are forever changed. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. Doesn't argue with him. Just says, come and see. You come and see. You come and listen to his words. You come and see what he does. And after Jesus deals with Nathaniel, verse 49, Nathaniel answers him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. The third confession of our text. 
So, verse 41, he's proclaimed to be the Messiah. Verse 45, he's proclaimed to be the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And now in verse 49, he's the Son of God and the King of Israel. And now these confessions become the very basis of the Gospel of John. So much so that when you come to that, to that near the end in chapter 20, as I mentioned, and John says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. He takes two of these titles to summarize it all. Two of these confessions. And this will become the apostolic testimony upon which you and I know Jesus Christ this morning. Because they saw, they heard, and they told us. And you see, if that's true, that Christ by his Holy Spirit is saying to us through John that he wants us to believe too that he's the Christ, the Son of God, that it means that the Jesus we read of here in John 1 is the same Jesus today who would summon us to come and see and to believe and to confess. And it means that this Jesus of all this love and kindness who draws people, who opens doors to people, is the same Jesus today. He doesn't hide from us. Don't let Satan tell you that. Don't let your own heart tell you that. He's hiding from me. I want to know him and he won't let me know him. It's not true. If you seek him, you will find him. That's the promise of Scripture. But he doesn't show himself to us physically as he did to these disciples. He shows himself now in the apostolic testimony. Look with me at 1 John uh, the epistle written by the gospel writer. If you go to 1 John chapter 1, it's a remarkable introduction. Uh, 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning... There we hear sort of, again, the same word John, the gospel begins with, the word beginning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. It's a different beginning, by the way, though. It's the beginning of Christ's ministry. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. When did their hands handle Jesus? Hands handled Jesus when Christ appeared after his resurrection, said, are you afraid? Are you afraid? Spirits don't have flesh and bones. Handle me. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Why? So that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. See, John understands very clearly the unique place of the apostles. We saw. We heard. We touched him. And we declared to you the resurrected Jesus. So you can have fellowship with Christ and have the fullness of joy. Christ is still calling sinners to himself to follow him. By hearing him in his word, by following him in his word, he's still saying to us, come and see. Do you have doubts? Do you have fears? Do you want to know if it's true? Come and see. 
Bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring yourself, bring your heart. Come and see. Read me my word, see me in my word, touch me in my word, hear me in my word, and believe it's me. If you seek him, you will find him. And it's remarkable, isn't it, that each time someone discovers Jesus, they rush off to get someone else. Because if you meet the living Lord Jesus Christ and realize that he is the answer, that he's the meaning of history, that he's the Savior, that your heart has needed, then you can't help but tell others. And yet, it's not we who have to produce Jesus. All we have to do is open the word where Christ is found. To tell the world, just come and see. Just come and read. Just come and hear the word preached and see him. Well, then we see secondly this morning, not just that we're invited to know him truly, but we discover that he knows us truly. As Jesus interacts with each of these disciples, he reveals to us that he actually knows these ones who didn't know him. He loves them. He cares for them. And that's important, isn't it? There's no relationship if, if you know someone, but they don't know you. Right? We have this uh, interesting thing with uh, a celebrity culture where we all feel like we're good friends with, you know, name five people. But then you think and you think, they don't even know I exist. I watch them on videos. I hear them. I know the next thing they're going to say. I know all the things they've done. They don't even know I exist. They wouldn't even care if I died tomorrow. See, that's not a relationship. Yesterday on the airplane, I sat next to a lady who was very polite. She answered every question I asked, but she never asked one single question about me. I didn't know if she was shy or if she was giving me the universal sign of, I don't want to talk to you. But... Her response was polite, but no, no open door, nothing, nothing she wanted to know of me. Now, Christ knows us. That's important. Because we recognize we have needs. Everybody knows they have needs, but we, we don't know our own needs. We, we misinterpret our needs, right? People misinterpret loneliness for thinking, I just need another person. I need a girlfriend. I need a boyfriend. I need a wife. I need a husband. We, we misinterpret insecurity to think that if I just had money, I would be secure. We misinterpret feelings of being undignified to think if I just got better clothes or a more glamorous career, then I would have dignity. We misinterpret boredom to think I just need to find some more exciting recreation. We misinterpret distress to think it's his fault, it's her fault. If they didn't do that to me, my life would be perfect. But Jesus knows us more deeply. And when Andrew brings Peter to Jesus, what do we read? Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, Jesus studied Peter. Jesus gazed at Peter. Jesus read Peter through and through. He doesn't see as men sees. And therefore, he's not misled by the image we try to project about ourselves. The identity we try to put on, whether it's our social media profile, picture we put up, posts we make. My life is so happy. My life is so wonderful. 
whether it be the upbeat and confident persona or the kind smile, or maybe we are so gentle to everyone at church, but we scream and rage at home. We cover up a lot before the eyes of people, but Christ reads us through and through. He knows you this morning if you're struggling with fear, discouragement, anger. He knows which young lady or young man is struggling with lust. He knows the heart of every father here today. And those who are wishing that they'd been better fathers. Those who bear regrets over missed opportunities or failures. Jesus looks at Simon. And he says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Cephas is the Aramaic. Peter, Petros, is the Greek for stone or rock. Jesus seems to be saying, I know you. You're unstable as water. You are impetuous, Peter. You are impulsive and rash. I'm going to make you a rock. Was Peter dissatisfied with himself? Did he know at that moment he was being read by Jesus? Did he sense in himself that I'm unworthy of Christ and there's so much in my life I've been struggling against? The Lord Jesus not only knew what Peter was, but he proclaimed what Peter would be as Christ would take hold of him and shape him and remake him for his purpose. You know, we give nicknames to people sometimes based on something they did or or a character trait they now possess, but only Jesus gives names based on what people will become. You will be the rock man. You will be Cephas. You will be Peter. You will be firm and steadfast. You will be standing up before the Jews on the day of Pentecost to announce me as the Christ. See, Jesus is like a sculptor, as someone put it, who who sees the sculpture before he's begun carving. So Michelangelo or someone who talked about that, that before he started chiseling, he already saw the image. That's the work of an artist, isn't it? Before they lay the chisel to the stone or to the wood or to the ice, they already know what needs to be removed, that it might become what is there. Well, Christ will make us after his pattern. And we've had that experience, haven't we, in his word that we, we sense at times as we read the scriptures. Or hopefully as we sit beneath the preaching of the word that we, we know occasionally that he knows me. We open up and read a psalm and we we hear the cries and the pleas of David and the Spirit makes us aware that the Spirit reads us through and through. These are the things I'm experiencing. The Lord knows that. Scripture points out exactly what's going on inside of me. He knows my propensities, my fears, my struggles. Christ, in the preaching of his word, he, he puts his finger on his sin. He unveils us. And in doing that, he reminds us that he knows what we are. But he also knows what he's making us to be. For he is the Lord of the new creation. 
And we saw that in the opening of John, the prologue, right? Because the word beginning and the language there in John 1 takes us back to Genesis. Genesis, in the beginning, that was the creation. God made us in his image. God, the great sculptor, made us perfectly in his image and true holiness and righteousness and knowledge. And we threw it away. And now comes the gospel in Jesus, John 1, in the beginning. And it's a new beginning that Jesus will make as he comes to recreate. And it's interesting that in the Gospel of John here, you read of a succession of days, just as there was a succession of days in, in the creation account. One day followed another. And, and you have the next the same thing here in John, chapter 1, verse 29, the next day. And then verse 35, again, the next day. And then verse 43, the following day. And then John 2, verse 1, on the third day. The third day after those three days, which could be saying the sixth day, and therefore you have a whole week of a new creation as Jesus goes to work. And isn't it remarkable that as God named the light day, and he gave to Adam the right to name the animals, now we have the God-man Jesus, and he renamed Simon. You'll be called the rock. Christ has come to remake us. Philip brings Nathaniel. Nathaniel approaches Jesus. Jesus proclaims, look, an Israelite in, in which there's no deceit, none of the Jacob deceit, all the Israel. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael's amazed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. How could, how could you have seen me before you saw me? And what was the significance of that place under the fig tree? We're not told. Was it there under the fig tree that Nathanael was struggling with his doubts? trying to process what John the Baptist was announcing, that the Messiah was here, or, or wrestling with his own sins and whether he could be forgiven before the Lord. What was he doing beneath the fig tree when Jesus saw him before he saw him? But Jesus is making plain that he's the Savior who knows, who knows what we're thinking, who knows us through and through. And that's good news, especially when we think, no one understands me. I'm standing in the stairwell of the library at college. And there was a girl and there was a guy who seemed might, might be interested in each other. And I heard her say, I need a guy who understands me. I don't even understand myself. And I thought I saw the guy back up just a little bit. I'm so confused. I don't know me. But what does Jesus say? John 10, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. That's fellowship. That's relationship. Not that you simply know some Jesus and the great things he's done and he's the cosmic celebrity, but he doesn't know you 
No. I know my sheep. I know what God made them to be. I know what they did to themselves. I know what my plan is for them. I love them. I love them. One writer puts it like this. To meet Jesus is to meet the one who knows us, to whom we need not and dare not pretend, and in whom we can place our complete trust and confidence. We are happy to place our confidence in a physician who knows us and understands our physical condition, so we trust in Jesus, the physician of our souls, who knows completely our spiritual state. To know Christ is not just to know about Christ, but it's to know that Christ knows you. It's to know that Christ knows you. Until you know that Christ knows you, you probably don't know Jesus, do you? Because when you come to Jesus, you know that he knows you. You're convicted of your sin. You fall on your face. And you've met the one who loves you. And interestingly enough, then you're not so scared off by the one who says, I don't even understand myself. Right? Because in the church of Jesus Christ, as we gather with other people who must all confess in some way, I don't even understand myself, we have this assurance that the one we're called to love is known by Jesus. And that's why a wife or a husband can love their wife or husband despite whatever confusion. That's why a brother or sister can can love the one whose behavior is difficult to comprehend. Because we know that though I don't know all things, the good shepherd does. He knows. He knows it all. So we can pray to him and seek to be a friend. But finally this morning then we see not just that we're invited to know Jesus and that he knows us completely, but that he promises that he is truly greater than what we know. Nathaniel's impressed in verse 49, you are the son of God, you're the king of Israel. And Jesus says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Jesus is referring to the vision that Jacob had when he had to flee his homeland from his brother Esau who wanted to murder him. And as he slept, you remember, he saw a ladder, or it might actually have been a staircase, and angels ascending and descending upon it, the staircase in full use. And he probably knew about the ziggurat towers that were found in Mesopotamia, where they actually built such structures that were to be landing pads for the gods to come down and then to descend the stairs to the people. And he may have known about the Tower of Babel, which itself may have been man's attempt to reach up to heaven and pull God's blessing down, which failed so miserably. But now as he's running from the homeland, as he has nothing in his hand, as he has nothing that he can do to secure his life, as he has no access to the thing he needs, the blessing of God, God comes and says, I will come down to you. 
And now Jesus is saying here, isn't he, that this dream that was humanly impossible to fulfill, Jesus Christ has come to fulfill. He is the true staircase to heaven. He is the Son of God who has come down. He's the one who died for our sins and was lifted up. He is that avenue of fellowship between God and man. And in Jesus Christ, all the blessings of heaven are ours, even the angels. John Calvin writes, angels are said to ascend and descend so as to be ministers of God's kindness toward us. He points out the mutual intercourse that exists between God and man. Now, we must acknowledge that this benefit was received through Christ because without Christ, angels would have rather been a deadly enemy against us than a friendly care to help us. They are said to ascend and descend on the Son of Man, not because they minister to him, but because in reference to him and for his honor, they include the whole body of the church in their friendly regard. The gate of heaven is open to us. We're fellow citizens of the saints and companions of the angels. And they have been appointed to be the guardians of our salvation. To descend from the blessed rest of the heavenly glory to relieve us in our distress. So Christ came not just to make us to know God, but to restore us to communion with God. In Jesus Christ, the disciples will meet the avenue of fellowship. They will see their Lord upon a cross. And they will come to discover afterwards that that cross, Christ stretched out and bearing our sins, is the way and the only way that we who are known by God in our sins could be known by God in love and mercy and forgiveness and fellowship. In Jesus Christ, God has come down to us. In verse 39, Jesus says to Andrew and the other disciple, when they ask, where are you staying? He says, come and see. And then we read, they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. You see, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now Andrew and the other disciple, they see it. They see where Jesus is staying, and they stay with him. And they begin to experience this glory, that the Son of God has come down to dwell among men, and he's invited them home with him. They saw him, that he lives among us, and they met him who invited them to live with him. Can we know God? Can we know God? The answer of the Gospel of John is a brilliant yes. We know God because God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, who has come to dwell with us. Oh, Father, we long to know you better. We long to realize more deeply the riches that are ours in Christ. We long to make better use of the staircase you have erected, that our fellowship with you would be deeper and more pure and more holy. Towards that end, we pray, uncover our sin and deal with our doubts. Strengthen our faith. Cleanse us of all evil. 
and teach us who you are through Jesus our Lord. May we see his face and in seeing him see you. Praise be to you, O God, for visiting us. We praise you that God does dwell with men. Amen.